Good afternoon. It is uh, very good to be back worshiping with y'all um, this morning and this afternoon. We uh, thank you for your prayers as my family kind of was away for about three weeks. Um, we enjoyed exploring the Great West and the mountains and all the coolness that they had to offer. Um, I know that we can be creatures of habits, so please bear with me this afternoon as I shake things up a bit. Um, so before we get to the sermon text and read that this morning, I wanted to provide us with a little introduction as to why we are here in Paul's letter, uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Last month, we began our study with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we addressed the first question and answer that tells us that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The first question really rightfully addresses this age-old question of, who am I, right? And why am I here? And does my life have meaning, right? And if so, what, what is this meaning, And when it comes to glorifying God, we learn that the act of glorifying has several facets. It uh, has several different ways that we should approach God. And those were appreciation and adoration and affection and subjection. And these are all different ways, that uh, different approaches to God that brings about great joy in believers. And we know that there is a hope that lies outside of us, right? Outside of you and I, and it rests in the finished work of Christ, and that is the good news. That is the cause for joy, even in the midst of our painful human experience. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by driving us right to the feet of a just God who loves us, and that should make us a people who rejoice. So this afternoon, we are going to continue our journey with the next question that great thinkers must ask. And it's this, right? How do I know who I am? And, and, and why am I here? Or more specifically, uh, the chief end, if the chief end of my life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, then the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number two reads, what rule has God given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy him? That is the second question. And here's the answer, right? The Bible. The Bible. That's, it's really brief. Um, but the catechism more eloquently puts it like this. The Word of God, which is contained in Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testaments, and is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Did you catch that progression? Right, the first question of the catechism answers the basic question of life. Like, what is the meaning of life? Uh, why it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the second question answers this. It says, okay, well, if you know how to carry out uh, the meaning of life, you need to look no further than the word of God. Wisdom, right? Do you want it? Here you go. It's in the word of God that we get to uh, open up this morning. King Solomon was perhaps one of the wisest men that has ever lived, and he said that wisdom is more powerful than weapons of war. Huh. This word of God must be pretty explosive. 
Charles Spurgeon said, uh, when talking about wisdom, he said, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is to not be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. That last part of that quote is golden. To know how to use knowledge is to have great wisdom. And where do we find this knowledge? And how do we figure out how to use it? How do we glorify God? How do we enjoy Him forever? How do we know these things? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number two, has a great answer for us this afternoon, and it it points us to the divinely inspired Word of God. Now I'd like you to pull out your Bible and open it up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, and let us read that scripture together this morning. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now when we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in the words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's begin this morning in a word of prayer. Father, for the salvation of all that you have given to us through Jesus Christ as a light to the world in darkness... I ask that you would illumine us from your word this morning, this afternoon, with the light of Christ, that by the merits of Christ's passion we may be led to eternal life through that same Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns one God forever and ever. Amen. So when it it comes to knowing what we know and knowing what to do with what we know, it might be wise to begin with someone who knows a thing or two about knowing, right? When it, when it comes to knowing about knowing, there is one man that continually has come into my, uh, conversation over this past year when I was checking in with Evan, right? I, I thoroughly enjoyed hearing what he was learning and wrestling with last year. Uh, Evan spent a good chunk of his time trying to wrap his mind around the writings of a Dutch scholar named Cornelius Van Til, right? And Van Til is this extremely intelligent guy. Had, my first semester in seminary was apologetics. And uh, reading through his book, I think I read each sentence about 10 times and still didn't quite understand everything. I don't know how he did it, but he articulated it very well. Uh, But Van Til was an extremely intelligent individual who said this. 
If one does not make human knowledge wholly dependent upon the original self-knowledge and consequent revelation of God to man, then man will have to seek knowledge within himself as the final reference point. He then goes on to claim that finding wisdom from within ourselves is a ridiculous and totally futile endeavor. So now I think we've done a little bit of mental gymnastics about this knowing thing and knowing what we know and how we know it and why we know it. So let's try to unpack what we do know, right? These guys, Van Til, uh, we talked about Sir Spurgeon, King Solomon, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism are all pointing to God's special revelation. And that's found in Scripture, and the Word of God is the source for true knowledge and wisdom. The Bible. And in our sermon text this morning, uh, we will dive into three twos. All right? That's three sets of two things. Right? First, we're going to find that there are two wisdoms. Right? There's this wisdom of the age and, and the wisdom of God. And one wisdom glorifies God and enjoys Him forever, and the other wisdom does not. Second, we will find that there are two spirits. Right? There's the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the world. And one of these spirits enables us to glorify God and to enjoy Him, and the other does not. And finally, we will find that there are two people. Right? The natural person and the spiritual person is what Paul said. And one of these persons will glorify God and enjoy Him, and the other does not. But first, we are going to address the two kinds of wisdom found in this world. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. Please look with me back at verse 6 again. It reads, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Before we get too deep into our first point, I think it's helpful to clarify a word. Um, Paul begins verse 6 with a statement, Yet among mature believers, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And this word mature here uh, has been twisted and used and abused in Christian circles to promote this hierarchical system of better or lesser Christians. Right There are those who know more and, and those who are closer to God and have the special wisdom, and then there are those who do not. And while Paul does go on to talk about spiritually, the spiritually immature, specifically the Corinthians in chapter 3, uh, but here in chapter 2 he's using this word mature a little differently. He's using it to describe all of those who believe in Christ. It's actually a really fun play on words because uh, the church in Corinth is plagued with many who think really highly of themselves. They think they've attained this special knowledge, even one that's greater than what uh, Christ gave to Paul. And they thought that they were more mature. So Paul turns around and uses this word mature kind of against them and to explain that uh, there's this concept that all Christians are mature in the sense that they have come to terms with the message of the cross while others, by definition, have not. The message of Jesus Christ crucified is the only fundamental dividing line in the human race. Paul's point is then rather clear. This wisdom that he's talking about is given to God's people, and it's in direct contrast to the wisdom of this age. And it's not in accordance with the rulers of this age. We are then quickly reminded that... Um, the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. They are not eternal, right? That makes their source of wisdom finite or limited, right? Or inferior to the wisdom of God. What Christians need to cherish is instead a secret 
hidden wisdom of God, which God, God decreed before the ages of the world, uh, before the ages for our glory, says verse 7. What is this mysterious wisdom, right, that Paul is so uh, talking so highly about, right? If we dive into this concept of wisdom, we'll see that it's characterized by three different traits in our passage, right? First, it is literally this secret and hidden mystery, right? This wisdom of God has been hidden for a very long time, but now it's been revealed through the Spirit, right? This, this is an odd concept. Um, it needs to be thought of, I think, very carefully, Right? The authors of the New Testament are constantly saying that um, the coming of Christ and the good news, the gospel, uh, the, the gospel that Christ brings with him, these things were prophesied in the Old Testament. And if they were prophesied, how can the same gospel uh, be prophesied and fulfilled while at the same time be this hidden yet now revealed thing? Isn't that a weird contradiction? How does that, how does that work? I promote this isn't really a contradiction at all, right? Paul himself says in his letter to the Romans that the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul doesn't shy away from this concept of contradiction. He addresses it head on in his letter to the Romans, right? And in, in, in his sovereignty, I think God ordained part of this good news to be veiled in a bit of mystery, right? So that certain events could occur. We're told this in 1 Corinthians, right? If the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament were crystal clear, then Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and uh, Herod may not have conspired together to execute Christ on the cross. And that part of God's story is necessary for our redemption, so thankfully, the rulers of that age didn't quite understand the wisdom of God. It was hidden. Secondly, this wisdom has always been a part of God's plan. God decreed before the ages of our, for our glory, it says in verse 7. This is an absolutely wonderful thought. I mean, if the God of this universe wasn't shooting from the hip uh, as, as a story of humanity played out before his very eyes, right? The Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus Christ was chosen before the creation of the world. We can look back at the beginning of the creation narrative in, in Genesis where God promises to redeem uh, the world from the seed of Eve. And then God provides prophets. He provides priests and kings for his people, but none of them live up to this holy and righteous standards. Right? These men exist as types or shadows or examples of an even better leader to come for God's people something that has always been. The third and final trait of this wisdom of God is that some people still do not believe it. It's only the mature, right, as Paul says in verse 6, it's only mature whom God has revealed this wisdom to. This knowledge is absolutely useless without the revelation gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our second contrast of the two spirits, right? As we have found, uh, the wisdom of the Lord is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this wisdom enables us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Which wisdom do you hold to? Which wisdom do you hold on to? That of the world, of those things that uh, we are taught around us by society, by the news, by uh, media. Or do we hold on to the wisdom of the word that we found in, find in the word, 
of Christ and him crucified. The wisdom of the world is futile, and it will come to an end, and it's not worth placing our trust in. Our second contrast this morning lies within two opposing spirits. The spirit of the world is set against the spirit of God in this second part of our text. Please join me in reading, starting in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths. For who knows a person's thought except for the spirit of that person which is in him? So also none comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we may impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we've, we've already established that Christians or the spiritually mature are given the wisdom of God in order that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. And now we can understand that the wisdom, that this wisdom has two primary uh, dimensions of revelation. Right, and, and this is Van Til talked about that in his quote this morning. This this first dimension is this public arena, right, of truth, and the second takes place within the individual. The things freely given to us by God refers to Christ's finished work on the cross. This selfless act of mercy is a gift that God freely bestows upon His people, and it also showcases God's wisdom. And we see this as we look through the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture. As we see it unfold from uh, its partially hidden past. However, there's still this fact that this free knowledge given in this public arena is not understood fully apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Right? It's not nearly enough to believe that Christ existed, that Christ died on the cross, and that Christ was resurrected three days later. These, these facts are true. And, but James tells us that even the demons believe this and were shuddered and shuddered. So what separates this mature from the immature? The righteous from the unrighteous? Or, or what makes a Christian a Christian? Paul tells us in verses 10 through 13 that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Or the Spirit of God. And without the Holy Spirit, no one would ever truly understand that God, what God has revealed of himself in the Word. D.A. Carson says this. He says, Our obtuseness... Our deep self-centeredness, our love of pomp and power and prestige, simply would not have allowed us to understand the cross or our need of it. In short, our very lostness demanded the work of the Spirit of God to the end that we might understand what God has freely given us. Church, what an amazing God that we worship here today. Not only does he redeem us through life and death and the resurrection of his Son, But he also loves us enough to send his spirit to enable us to comprehend these truths, to comprehend and understand these things that he has done. And then there's this other spirit that stands in stark contrast to the spirit of God. It's it's the spirit of the world. We're not given too many details of it um, here in chapter 2. However, we see that the Spirit of God is, in verse 12, now we've received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that might understand the things freely given to us by God. So if the Spirit of God helps us to understand the things freely given to us by God, then we should be able to kind of deduce, work backwards, that the Spirit of the world hinders us from understanding, hinders us from divine understanding. 
Right? And I think that we can understand this. We don't need to look any further than the 5 o'clock news to understand this concept. Right? The spirit of the world is telling us that right now there's, there's more than two genders. Right? How many genders? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and it doesn't really matter so long as it twists the truth given to us in Scripture. The spirit of the world confuses us, and it tells us that our hope isn't found in God's divine providence. Right? It tells us that our hope is found in our country's politicians. Right? It doesn't matter which way you vote. Uh, this person or that person is definitely going to secure your financial position. Right? It's gonna, they're going to secure your happiness. They're going to secure your God-given rights. And in them, you can find hope and a future. The spirit of this world is really loud. And it's everywhere. It's about me and me and me and you and you and you. Right? The, the spirit of this world is distracting us. And we need to remain in constant prayer for the knowledge and the assurance that only proceeds from the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit enables us to understand this wisdom of God, to understand Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as Paul says. He does this in order that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But who is this we? Who are the mature that Paul speaks of in verse 6? Paul clarifies this in, in the end of our passage this morning. By now, you may be thinking that Paul has spent enough time with these fundamental contrasts. Right? He's contrasted the wisdom from God with that from the wisdom of the world. He's contrasted the spirit of God against the spirit of the world. So why continue? Why continue on? I, I think that Paul wants to argue to his audience. He wants them to understand that we have an utter dependence on the Holy Spirit in order to first comprehend God's grace and in turn glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. We are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. Our lives, ourselves, our human nature tells us otherwise. Our third and final contrast in this uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is between what Paul refers to as the natural person and the spiritual person. Please look with me at these two people starting in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. When Paul is writing this letter, the term Christian uh, hasn't been developed yet. right? And so uh, Paul uses these terms, the spiritual person and uh, the person without the spirit. And he tra- you know, it's translated in the ESV here as, as the natural person. We're given two distinct features of the person without the Spirit. If we look in verse 14. We learn that they do not accept the things of the Spirit, for they're foolish to them. Right? This is a direct conclusion to the previous verses in 10, 10 through 13, right? The, the, the wonderful, the life-changing, the transforming things from the Spirit are seen as moot. They're they're completely useless to a man who believes he can accomplish life under his own power. Secondly, we see that Paul insists that human beings cannot understand these things because they are spiritually discerned. These aren't things that we come up with our own, but Paul bluntly insists that uh, the utter inability of mankind, 
we, we don't have the ability to discern this wisdom of God apart from the Holy Spirit's assistance. We're so lost, we're so confused, and we're so selfish that we can never come to the Father but through the intervention of the Spirit. So something that we may know, this is something that many do not like, this is something that's confusing. Um, I clearly recall a conversation I had with some of my students in Colorado about 12 years ago. Uh, and youth ministry culture in Colorado is really different than here in the Bible Belt. Um, in Texas, if I had 50 teenagers, I could depend that half or more would show up every single week. And it was easy to plan things because you knew you had a crowd. You had that momentum. But in, in Colorado, with a group of 50 students, one week you could have 60 students show up, and the next week you're going to have two. Right? And I still haven't quite figured out that logic. I was never able to, and it still doesn't make sense. But anyways, it was, a, it was a cold and snowy night. And after spending a few days preparing this lesson and these crazy games and, and going to the store and buying all this food and energy drinks and ridiculous things that you do in youth ministry, I only had two students show up. I had spent days, not hours, days planning for a really great evening. I had a really great lesson that was going to wrap all of these crazy things together and teach us something, but I had two kids. What do you do with that? We ended, we ended up spending the entire two hours sitting around a table drinking Keurig coffee. Uh, <laughs> it was already there. And we just talked. right? And, and Andy, um, being a typical 14-year-old boy, uh, interrupted our random conversation about dating uh, with an odd Bible trivia question. I can't remember what the question is, um, but it led to this rather blunt uh, presentation of the gospel where, where I was able to kind of talk to them about what our faith is and, and, and what, what is this good news, right? These guys grew up in this church that rarely talked about the gospel, rarely presented the gospel in their worship, in their preaching. And I was able to bring that and share that. And I'm never going to forget the look of Jennifer's face, the girl that was there. She looked at me completely distraught. And she said, I can see that you have a passion. I can see that you have an, an excitement for this, this grace that you're talking about that you get from God. I really want that. But I just don't have it. Our conversation didn't end there. It continued, and it continued on for weeks and even months. Right? Jennifer had tons of good questions on faith, on the Bible, on life. But at the end of the day, she tried to understand the wisdom of God, but just couldn't. And I'll never forget that look of confusion on her face about how, how I, you got this. I don't. This can be a really difficult pill to swallow and even more difficult when we see our really good friends or our family members dismiss the wisdom of God. We simply can't fathom these things unless we have, unless we have the Spirit of God working in our hearts and our minds to unfold these things. We're not left without hope for Jennifer or our friends and our family. Paul deploys an analogy later on in chapter 3 saying that he may have sown the seed and then Apollos may come after and water it, but only God can make this plant grow and bring forth fruit. Right? We are not charged with this weighty goal of saving souls, but we are given the job of continually sowing the seeds, regardless of the type of soil that they may follow in. 
Andy has kept up with Jennifer throughout the years. Him and I talk weekly. Um, and we both continue to pray that God will one day give her this mind of Christ. And this, while this understanding of, uh, is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit, we are left with prayer and supplication to the King of Kings. It's something that strengthens our faith. Our hope does not rely on mankind. Our hope does not rely upon ourselves because at the end of the day, we are just not going to pass the cut. We will inevitably fail, but our hope solely relies upon the grace of God who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And it is by his wounds, the prophet Isaiah says, that we are healed. So in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, we have observed three twos. That's three sets of two opposing concepts, right? We see that there are two wisdoms, a wisdom from God and a wisdom of the world. And one wisdom glorifies God and enjoys him, and the other does not. And then we find that there are two spirits, right? We have the spirit of God, and we have the spirit of the world. And these spirits enable, one of these spirits enables us to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, while the other does not. And finally, we find that there are two people in this world, the natural person and the spiritual person, as Paul says. Right? One of these persons, the Christian, will glorify God and will enjoy him forever, while the other will not. The point of Paul's passage is that the wisdom of God is given by the Spirit of God to the people of God so that they might in turn glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This wisdom of God is found in the Word of God, as Paul emphasizes. It is, it is of Jesus Christ and of Him crucified. This Word is given to us so that we might come to know and understand and gather together and worship Him. So when the Westminster Catechism asks us, by what rule hath God given us to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him, now we can respond with this. It's the Word of God. The Word of God which is contained in Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New. And it's the only rule to direct us in how we can glorify and enjoy Him. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and the revelation and the joy that comes with wrestling with it. We ask that you would continue to give us knowledge. We ask that you would send your spirit to give us wisdom and knowledge of the saving grace of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for your grace. And we love you for that. Pray that you would be with us this week. Pray these things in your name. Amen.